Pub food in Britain used to be just greasy and bland, but the people who moved in from the former colonies changed that. Coming up, Madhur Jaffrey tells us how Indian favorites have now become comfort food in England. They love it. It's become the food of the masses. In China, an entire generation of single-child families is remaking their society. American Zach Dykewald has been getting acquainted with his peers in China and learning what they expect for themselves and their country. The older generations in China, their experience of the world, their experience of the outside world, is so different than this younger generation in China that the important question you should be asking when you meet someone in China is not where are you from, which city, but rather when are you from? From test monsters to tech innovators and a new wave of world travelers, we'll get insights into young China in the hour ahead. Stay with us. It's Travel with Rick Steves. He went to China as a college student, became fluent in Mandarin, and came to experience a different side of China than most Americans get to see. Since then, Zach Dykewald has started a think tank, and now he's written the book Young China to explain China's restless millennial generation to the rest of the world. Zach joins us in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves to share what he's been discovering in China. If you have an Indian cookbook at home, there's a good chance Madhur Jaffrey wrote it. A few years ago, Madhur released a book and a TV special called Curry Nation to demonstrate how a good chicken tikka masala has become ingrained in the British palate. It just might be replacing fish and chips as the country's favorite takeout. Madhur, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you. Madhur, when you think about the British love of Indian food, um, how do you explain that? Well, I think secretly between you and me. That it's a reverse colonization. We've come in, we've swooped down, and said, we'll get you one way or the other. (laughs) I love that. You know, it's so interesting. There is that sort of poetic justice, you know. You you colonize us now, it's your turn. It's your turn, and we've done it very nicely with food. No guns. That's a nice way to do it. I I think you've got willing, uh, willing subjects now. But I have to tell you a story right here. You talked about no more fish and chips and chicken tikka masala instead. Uh Uh-huh. I went to Glasgow. We were filming Curry Nation. It's a 10-part series for British Uh TV. And I was determined to find out what this thing that I'd heard about, that (laughs) everybody was eating chips with curry sauce. I said, what is that? What is chips with curry sauce? I know chips. English people eat fish and chips and chips with vinegar or whatever. But chips with curry sauce. So we go into this, they call it a chippy, which is a place that has deep fried pizzas and it has chips with curry sauce. So I go in and the camera's with me, we're filming, and I go and ask, can I have uh, chips with curry sauce? And they said, sure. So this order comes in and there are these chips with this glutinous yellow sauce on top. And I asked the manager, who happens to be Turkish, which is what's happened to Britain now. The manager's Turkish and he says to me, Madam, this is your curry sauce. I said, could you show me how you make it? So he takes me into a back room, and there he has a a pail and a kettle with hot water that he, electric kettle. So he boils up hot water, takes a can, opens it, and takes out two big scoops of this yellow powder, puts it in the pail on the floor, then puts the water in, then he has a blender stick, and he goes into the pail, and he said, that's the curry sauce. <laughs> and I said, wonder what this tin is. And I look at the tin, I turn it around, and it says, curry sauce made in China. <laughs> no, no. 
So that is what the British are eating. They want the flavor of Indian food. And they have resorted to this as one of the many ways that's so desperate for Indian flavor. With a Turkish restaurateur. With a Turkish, he was poor whipping guy, up he was Chinese, just a manager. Wi- <laughs> yeah, not a restaurateur might be saying too much, yes. but whipping up Chinese uh, tin yeah. of faux Indian And they have Indian worked curry. out their own way of eating curry. Well, how would you make a better curry, though? I'd make a better sauce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go from scratch. I was working in a film in England. And my makeup girl was from uh, Wales. And she told me the story that a friend of hers in Wales, an actor, was visiting her in London. So he said, oh, I must have some good Indian food. This must be London must have the best Indian food. So she said, I'll take you to a restaurant. She took him to a restaurant and he ordered chicken vindaloo off and off. So the waiter looked very startled and he said, you want chicken vindaloo? He said, chicken vindaloo off and off. So it turns out that what he wanted was chicken vindaloo on a bed of half rice and half chips, which is how they eat it in Wales. So they've worked out their own way of eating Indian food. It's not necessarily the Indian way. England has worked out its own relationship with Indian food, but they love it. It's become the food of the masses. It really is. English cuisine almost now. Right. For example, every Thursday is curry night at the pubs. Mm -hmm. And the pub food is incredible. I think what the English couldn't handle was Indian food being so varied. So what is it? We want to standardize it. So then they standardized it in terms of heat. So what they've done is chicken korma is the mildest. Uh Chicken vindaloo and chicken madras, as they call it, is the hottest. (laughs) So... I have been to restaurants where it's so fiery, I can't eat it because it's just chili powder. Yeah. And I remember talking to it like a 14-year-old boy. And he said to me very proudly, this was in a pub where Thursday's families can come and eat. He said, I've graduated from chicken uh, korma to chicken vindaloo. As if that was a triumph. As if it was a triumph. (laughs) I traveled with a guy from India once and he had his own little vial of spice and it was very hot and yeah. he couldn't get stuff hot enough so yes. whenever we went out whatever it was pizza or you name it he'd put his but spice you see on those it. spices are mixed together in the appropriate way it's not okay. just chili powder so it's not just cranking so up some heat. people just put chili powder okay i friends of mine including the conductor zubin mehta carries around his own little silver box <laughs> of chilies but these are mixed powders that they make in south india which are absolutely wonderful but they have other things in them too We're saving the spices in India with one of the world's authorities on Indian cuisine right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Madhur Jafri, describes growing up in British India in her memoir called Climbing the Mango Trees. Her cookbooks include At Home with Madhur Jafri and Curry Nation, in which she explores Britain's 100 favorite curries. Madhur, you write very um, sweetly about actually not knowing how to cook until you went to England as a student in 1957 and then learning to cook Indian food almost because you missed it so much after dealing with the British food. Tell us well, a little bit about that's that. that's absolutely true. I was around 20, and I, my father put me on a boat, a P&O liner, that took me to Britain. I was going to drama school. And I arrived, and I realized that fish and chips were very good at that time. I could have that. But there was not much else that I enjoyed eating, and I missed, I really missed the food of India, of my home. And I wanted to recreate it, but I just, I couldn't make tea, I couldn't make rice, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't cook. 
I had not learned how and to And were cook. there Indian restaurants in England back they then? They were, but they were terrible. I think right. there were two in London at that time. Right, okay. But they were really bad, and they didn't they didn't taste of home. They tasted hmm. of some generic something, I don't right. know, but right. not really of Indian food. So then I started writing letters to my mother and saying, please teach me how to cook. And I said, I would like to learn these recipes. And I told her one was a cauliflower dish, one was a lamb dish, and uh, one was a potato dish, I remember. And she sent me three-line recipes, take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and I recreated them in my kitchen. But I remember the taste, so I could get it right. Oh, so you had the ingredients, but you had to jigger it until it matched the taste you remembered. That I remember. Because you wrote so beautifully. You, You wrote, when I left India to study in England, I could not cook at all, but my palate had already recorded millions of flavors, from cumin to ginger. They were all in my head, waiting to be called into service. Right. That's exactly how it works. And it must have been such a blessing to have your mother's letters that's to give right. you the key exactly. to recreating that's all they were, that's these, exactly especially you after on the eating head. that English cuisine yes. in 1950s. And it which, was see-through ah. roast beef gray, <laughs> cabbage boiled for 10 days, potatoes boiled for another 20 days. Just really not good food. It was just after the war and really not good food. So it was a revelation that I could make it myself And I got better and better and better and learned more and more dishes. So I'm self-taught. And I think (laughs) one of the reasons why my books work is that I write as an ignorant person for other ignorant people. That's very important. It is. Because it's accessible then. It seems like a lot of Indian restaurants are Bangladeshi. They're owned Owned by by Bangladeshis. A lot of them were owned by Bangladeshis at a certain time. And they all served the, a sort of Xeroxed uh, right. menu right. of the same dishes that were not Bangladeshi at all. They were mm-hmm. just a generalized North Indian menu and wasn't very good. Mm-hmm. So for Bangla, I can tell you where you should go. For Bangladeshi food, if you wanted true Bangladeshi okay. food, you'd go to the East End. Mm-hmm. So you have to look for specific restaurants. Are they Pakistani-owned? Mm-hmm. If they are, are they famous for serving Pakistani dishes? Mm-hmm. Go to regional places. There's a great place in London called Gujarati Rasoid. It's known for Gujarati food. Okay. So I would go for specifics. I would go for South Indian food to South Indian places. Madhur Jafri demystified Indian curries in her debut cookbook, An Invitation to Indian Cooking. It won the James Beard Foundation's Cookbook Hall of Fame Award in 1973. Since then, she's written dozens more, including Foolproof Indian Cooking and Vegetarian India. You've also probably seen her in a number of Merchant Ivory films and on TV. Madhur is our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves in an interview we first aired a few years ago. So, Madhur, maybe this is ridiculously simplistic, but for many people, and I have to admit for me, uh, you think Indian food and you just think Indian food. But, of course, that would be, that's like saying European food. Yeah, you know. exactly. Give me, a, in a very quick primer, the four or five regions and, and their distinctions, if we are out and about, especially in Britain where we have some good options. Well, Gujarati food, uh-huh. which I love. If you're a vegetarian, look no further. Huh. This is the best place. They will cook with curry leaves, which give it their food a lot of aroma. They will cook with mustard seeds. They will cook sometimes food that is slightly sweet uh-huh. as well. Gujarati. Yeah, Gujarati. Okay. So that's that's one cuisine. They have great snack foods. Gujarati. Okay, then take then me to Punjabi food, you will get almost everywhere. That is the North Indian food that has become high street food. Ah, so that's your basic generic Indian food that is, is Punjabi. It starts with the Punjabi. So you have the chickpeas that are everywhere. Hardy food. Hardy food. Right. Uh, and wonderful. You'll have the spinach. You'll Punjab. have the mustard greens. So that is one big cuisine. Okay. 
than generally South Indian cuisine. Mm -hmm. It's more from Tamil Nadu, mm -hmm. I would say, but it has the dosas, which are the gorgeous pancakes, which everyone must have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been speaking with Madhur Jaffrey. Her book is At Home with Madhur Jaffrey. Madhur, is there a golden memory that's edible from your childhood that that you can create by going to an Indian restaurant in Britain? Is, there, is it possible to get the kind of magical comfort food that takes you back to your childhood? I don't know if you can get it in a restaurant. Okay. However, if you'd cook it at home, how would you do that? I wouldn't cook it. What it would, would you, be a would mango. It, be? it would be a lovely, ripe mango, cooled, chilled with ice, and you just cut into it, and it would be an Alfonso mango, and you would cut into it, and it would be satiny and smooth, smoother than a peach, and slightly sweet, and a little hint of sourness. That would be my perfect Indian memory. Madhur Jaffrey, thank you for joining us, and uh, best wishes in your work. Thank you very much for having me. Madhur Joffrey tells us why mustard seeds are the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde of spices in a short extra to today's show. You can listen to it at ricksteves.com slash radio. We focus on how the tastes and expectations of young adults in China are changing their country beyond what their parents could ever have imagined. The American founder of the Young China Group explains next on Travel with Rick Steves. China has probably undergone more growth and change in the last generation than any other country on earth. But unlike their parents, who had to escape the harsh cultural revolution, a so-called restless generation of more than 400 million young Chinese millennials are now able to ask themselves, who do we want to be and what's our role in the world? Author Zach Dykwald was 20 when he first arrived in China on a study abroad program. He spent most of his 20s there, learning the language and spending time with his peers. He recently returned to New York, where he now heads the Young China Global Group. It's a consultancy designed to help the rest of the world to understand where China appears to be going. Zach's new book, Young China, examines the lives of young adults in China born since 1990. He looks at their views on dating, sex, and government, and their love of food, karaoke, and travel. Zach, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You went there as a student, probably not knowing that the experience you would gain would give you a very powerful and important insight into an emerging cultural and economic power. There's no doubt. I went as a 20-year-old who had never been to Asia, <laughs> let alone China. So it was, it was a bit of a science fiction play, as weird as that sounds. I was a big science fiction fan. Yeah. And when deciding where I could study abroad, I was at Columbia at the time. I, I figured I could either go to Europe and, and study history, the history of Western thought, uh -huh. politics, art, you know, drink a little wine along the way. Or I could go to China, where everyone was saying the future was happening. When you set it up like that. That was yeah, a good was a, move. How was your Mandarin? It was trash then to be, and that's even being kind. <laughs> after moving there full time, after graduating from school, about two years afterwards, I passed the highest level of fluency you can test for. So I, I made sure that uh, wow. I got it up to snuff. Good going. Now, we're going to talk about the millennials. I think that's what's really exciting about China is this young generation that's not burdened with the baggage of their parents and all of these very difficult times. But before we get into that big picture, What's the population of China, roughly, and how many of those people are poor, and how many are in the middle class? So the entire population of China is just shy of 1.4 billion. Okay. A lot of people. 
And to contextualize, when I say millennials, we're talking really about uh, born between 1980 and 1999. This is sort of an international classification. Mm-hmm. And the number of millennials in China, it's 417 million. Wow. So that's um, 50% more than the entire population of the United States. And we're just Yeah, it's more folks than we got in the U.S. <laughs> plus Canada combined. It's five times more than the number of millennials we have in the United States. That is a big market. That's a powerful political force. That's something to try to understand. Now, when you think about China being 1.4 billion, that's 1,400 million people, how many of them would you say are poor? Because... I went to China, and I had a, and this was uh, a while ago, and I had a sense that the vast majority of the people were poor, and they were sort of the compost pile upon which a thriving new middle class was going to be built, kind of at the expense of the poor. But I think they're beyond that now. What's the gap between rich and poor? What's the poor versus the middle class situation? Well, before I answer, Rick, do you mind if I ask when you were in China last? It was about 15 years ago. And you mentioned this in, in the beginning. What's so incredible about China is the pace of change. So over the last 65 years... The party is credited, but I really think that we should be crediting the population, the hardworking population of China, for bringing upwards of around 500 to 600 million people out of poverty. Wow. This is actually when you think about generation gaps. We have generation gaps here in the United States. You know, me and my dad, we have – he is a boomer. I'm a millennial. We, you know, we listen to different music. We wear different clothes. Fine. China has generation gulfs. (laughs) The older generations in China, their experience of the world, their experience of the outside world is so different than this younger generation in China that the important question you should be asking when you meet someone in China is not where are you from, which city, but rather when are you from, which era, which background, because that will tell you more about poverty or not, uh, subsistence or not. You know, in 1950, the same year my dad was born, the average life expectancy in China was only 36, between 36 and 40. Hmm. So you you didn't retire, you died. Of course, today, the average life expectancy is around 76. So Hmm. if you're comparing China of 50 years ago, fine. But even 15 years ago to the China of today, you're looking at more or less two totally different places separated by time and space. And you're saying the majority of this 1,400 million Chinese are middle class and have reason to work hard and plan on a good future? Entering into the middle class. So there's no doubt that China, because of its rate of change, still has a fairly sizable, what we would consider poor population. However, that number has diminished at a rate faster than anywhere else in the world. Hmm. Uh, If you're trying to put in the hundreds of millions, it's a little bit difficult because it's such a fluid population. Right. you're still talking in the hundreds of millions. Uh, But is it 500 million? No. Uh, China's actually been called by the Washington Post to be the world's middle class. Not yet rich, not poor, Mm -hmm. but certainly moving in a northern direction when you consider wealth. Now, of course, that wealth isn't evenly distributed all across the country. But when you think about the top 10% of China, when you think about the top 1% of China, you're talking about 14 million people. Top 10%, 140 million people. So as a consumer class, as a traveling class, the potential for impact is really out of this world. Describe the life for uh, just a a typical middle-class Chinese millennial. Are they optimistic? Is there a sense of upward mobility? Are they hung up with American Cold War baggage? What's it like to get into the mind of a Chinese millennial? 
Well, I call them the restless generation, and that's because they're also the identity generation. What do I mean by that? I think of this young generation as sort of being caught between two tectonic plates. On one side, you have this sense of tradition, sort of what it's always meant to be Chinese, a, a sort of modern neo-Confucian bundle of, of family, of hard work, the ability to chikhu, to eat bitter, the willingness to do long things or difficult things for long periods of time at the prospect of delayed gratification. That's on one side. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you have the pressures of modernity, you know, new clothing, uh, the new demographic structure of a Chinese family. It used to be you had very few old people, a lot of young people. Now you have many old people and not that many young people proportionately. Mm. Uh, you have urbanization. You have the Chinese city. You have the, a new race for wealth. And those two tectonic plates are sort of grinding against each other. So it makes for this restlessness. Uh, On one hand, you have this extreme optimism about the future. There's a sense that China is really getting better at a pace and scale that's unrivaled anywhere else in the world. On the other side, you have a lot of pressure. Pressure to succeed, pressure to get ahead, pressure to do increasingly well in school, not just pressure from your parents, but pressure from all the other kids within China who are also trying Mm. and striving to get ahead. Zach Dykwald is introducing us to Young China right now on Travel with Rick Steves. That's the name of his book about China's millennial generation. Zach's website is youngchinagroup.com. Zach, what's the history of the one-child policy? Did it work? Is it still going? So the one-child policy began around 1980, and it certainly did curb the birth rate at the time. In 2015, the one-child policy was relaxed. It actually happened in a set of phases. But now the one-child policy effectively doesn't exist. Hmm. However, many people, particularly in cities, are choosing not to have a second child because the thought process is that if I have a second child, I then have to divide the resources that I give to each of my children, making them less competitive in the school systems. Again, it reflects on the incredibly competitive environment uh, that exists in in Chinese cities in particular. Wow. Have one child so you can put all your resources behind that child so he can effectively compete and end up on top. Exactly. Now, I mentioned it's a young society, but I guess I was wrong. I mean, there's a lot of young people, but given the attempt to control population explosion, it's actually a society of one-child families. Right. So this is one of the biggest differences between old China and young China. It used to be in China that you had many young people. In 1950, uh, the fertility rates were about 5.5, so between five and six children Mm. per family. And like I said earlier, the average life expectancy was about 36, between 36 and 40. So you had a lot of young people and Mm. very few old people. It kind of looked like a pyramid. And that was a solid state. You know, when you're thinking about how you build your retirement system, for instance, it used to be that children in China were meant to be xiaoshun, so filially pious. They were meant to look after the old into old age. That was easy when old age didn't last very long and Mm. you had many siblings to help out. Now, because of this incredibly sizable longevity boom, you have people living well into their 70s. But because of the largest baby bust in human history around 1980 with the one-child policy, you have what's called a 4-2-1 crisis. Four grandparents for every two parents for every one child. Whoa, that's a heavy weight to bear if you, if you want to care about your elders. Exactly. You know, this young generation in China sort of gets a bad rep as Xiao Huangdi, so little emperor. 
Yeah. You know, imagine that 421 as a as an upside down funnel, right? You have yes. me, as, a, as a funnel, you have love, attention, resources, all being funneled onto that one single child. On the other hand, you also have an incredible amount of pressure pushing down on that single child generation on the millennials in China. Zach, you wrote about that and, and you had this phrase, for China's little emperors, heavy hangs the head that wears the crown. About a year into my time in China, when I just moved there after school, I had a job as an English teacher on the weekends. This is how I funded my long train trips I would take all across the country. It was an upscale training course for about five to six-year-olds who are learning technology as well as English simultaneously. So it was me in a class with two TAs and I think it was six children. And I'm thinking, gosh, I'm in a full orange jumpsuit with a turtle puppet on my hand, thinking that, wow, these are China's little emperors like that I've heard so much about, which means that I, of course, am their court jester. It was kind of a, mm. it was a tough thing for me to swallow a year outside of school. But as class progressed, these kids were adorable. You know, they're mm -hmm. enthusiastic. They were well-mannered. And one child in particular, Jianguo, quickly became my favorite. It would have been a normal class of young people were it not for the fact that at the back of the classroom, behind a glass partition, there were 12 parents and 24 grandparents watching every toggle of a microscope, every pound of a keyboard. So after class, I hear over the corner of the room, Jianguo starting to wail. And I go over and I ask, you know, what's going on? His grandparents are surrounding him, sort of patting his back and trying to calm him. His dad is actually sort of arguing with one of the grandparents. And his mother and his grandmother are showing Jianguo sheets of paper. I take a closer look and on those sheets of paper are words, English words, microscope, molecule, amoeba. These were words that we had learned over the course of the class. And I asked, you know, what's up? I didn't, I didn't assign any homework. And his mother, she says, Jenguo will be having to take the Gaokao, the college entrance exam, in 13 years. We are trying to give him a leg up. The pressure on this young generation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykwald. And Zach's book is Young China. And he's sharing this fastest changing society on earth, what it's like from a millennial perspective. Zach, let's just talk about millennial point of view in China. We've talked about the anxieties where you have uh, the weight, the burden of, of taking care of your elders when there's far fewer children and far more elders as people live longer. What about general sort of work ethic? Now you've got a, a lot of capitalism. You can work hard, you can prosper, is there a lot of pressure to, to get ahead? Is it focused just on education and then play by the rules? What's the mindset from a, a young person looking ahead at a career? Well, the pressure is fierce. Uh, we often think about this young generation sort of being unleashed on the world, but you, you really want to think about the domestic pressure and the domestic competition to get into a good high school, to get into a good college, and then to get a job on the increasingly difficult job market, and then also to find a partner on the increasingly competitive marriage market. The competition doesn't really end. Hmm. On one hand, there's this extreme desire to uh, continue to work hard, to continue to get ahead. On the other side, there's this want to enjoy themselves now, to to live in the moment. Hmm. My favorite toast, this is a toast, we, it's an old saying in China, we, we would toast to this in Chengdu, in Sichuan province, it means today we have booze, so today we drink. It's this idea of enjoying what you have and trying to live in the moment 
which sort of like what I pointed to earlier, is a little bit at odds with what it traditionally meant to sort of be a young person in China. You write about a phrase called test monsters and, yeah. and the strategy about the, the sea of question strategy to, to get a near-perfect score on the SAT in your second language. What is the sea of question strategy and, and uh, how big a deal is, is being a test monster? China is, is widely recognized alongside Singapore and South Korea, but really China at large, when you think of the size of the population, as being the best test takers in the world. So I, I was a Minshuguan uh, interviewer. Uh, for Colombia in Western China. And so I got to meet some of the most exceptional students in the area. And there's two students who I write about who are both self-proclaimed test monsters. One got a 2,400 at perfect score on their SAT. To give you some context, there was 583 people who did that that year out of about 1.6 million who mm. attempted to do so. Mm. So really cream of the crop. And the other one did significantly worse. They actually missed one question. So they got a 2390. Uh, but again, you're talking rare air in terms of testers. And so their test strategy is a little bit different. We think of learning the content in order to take the test. But what Ju Chao in particular would describe with the sea of question strategy is taking the test in order to learn the content. So the sea of questions strategy, and I've seen this mirrored by all of the best test takers I've ever encountered, is taking test prep after test prep after test prep, practice test after practice test after practice test, until you get so good at the test that you're able to just cream it when it comes down to test day. So it's less about knowing the content inside and out versus knowing the test. It's gaming the system, really, because it's not, it, it's, it's getting around have, how much do you know. Exactly. And, and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's becoming an interesting conversation because throughout China, people who are hiring are going through difficulties. They're realizing that hmm. someone who aces an engineering test isn't necessarily a great engineer. Maybe they're just a great tester. That relates to a concept you talk about in your book, Young China, where people are either imitators or innovators. And historically, China has been a great imitator, but now it's progressing and they are more confident and they are more powerful and they're more in control and they are innovating. Well, there's no doubt that particularly in this young, amongst this young generation, there is a burgeoning awareness of the importance of innovation. You know, when I first went to China, I would walk through a stationary aisle and there is one person from the West who was plastered on the backpacks, on the eraser heads, on the notebooks that they were selling to the students there. Steve Jobs. Hmm. So his trademark glasses, his long turtleneck, sort of gazing out at you at the stationary aisle saying, innovate. Be an create. innovator. Well, that's like an inspiration, me. yes. What's so interesting, in 2014, when Jack Ma, the founder and CEO at that point of Alibaba, came and had the largest IPO at that time in the, New York, in the history of the New York Stock Exchange. And what is Alibaba again? There's no exact corollary. It's sort of a mix between Amazon, eBay, but then about 15 other services and styles of business all thrown in. They're really the largest e-commerce innovator in the world right now, and it really is setting the stage. And it serves Chinese market. It serves primarily Chinese, but they're certainly trying to expand to international Alibaba. markets. So that's amazing. Steve Jobs is sort of an inspiration from a branding and a marketing point of view in China because people aspire to produce a lot and, and ace the global market. Without a doubt. And what was so interesting when Jack Ma and Alibaba had that historic IPO in 2014 is overnight, Steve Jobs was replaced by the face of Jack Ma. And I think it's a really important point because every culture needs their own heroes. And particularly for this young generation in China, 
they're increasingly proud of who they are, of what they stand for, and not just the sort of imitative version of their economy that we imagine, but increasingly the innovative side of things, which Jack Ma has really come to represent, innovative with Chinese characteristics. After recording our interview, Zach sent us statistics backed up by the World Bank that showed China getting close to wiping out poverty in the last three decades. Zach Dykwald explores the pop culture of young China in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. Sono Virginia Lucinelli dall'Italia e viaggio con Rick Steves. I'm Virginia from Italy and that was Italian for I travel with Rick Steves. Viaggio con Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykwald, and his book is Young China, looking at the emerging power of China through the eyes of a millennial. You know, when I think of that, I think of, strangely enough, I think of K-pop, Korean pop. I mean, the whole government in Korea is trying to make an industry out of being trendy and popular. And in China, it seems like they're just trying to produce and just get traction and, and go someplace. What's the pop culture like in China? Increasingly massive, actually. The C-pop, the Chinese pop scene in China, largely inspired by Korea, has become an enormous sort of passion and love affair for this young generation in China. There's reality shows made about it. Between C-pop and Chinese rap, I can't really flip the channel without landing on one of the two anymore. And they're not following the Korean pop thing, but they're doing their own. Yeah, you know, it was appreciating the Korean pop trend, but ultimately you want to be able to sing along to lyrics in your own language. And so C-pop has had a dramatic rise over this last year or two. And what is the government's approach to that? Is the government seeing that as a threat because these are nonconformists, or are they thinking, uh, let's just capitalize on this? It's a bit of both. You know, this is sort of the, the push-pull of, of the Chinese government because on one hand, there's a little bit of insecurity around, particularly with Chinese rap, for instance. There's a certain sexual element. There's a certain rebellious nature to a lot of hip-hop and rap in general. On the other hand, there's an enormous market opportunity, as well as an opportunity to show China that they don't need to look to the rest of the world for mm. something cool, for something fashionable, for something trendy. That China can be all of those things and more without needing that Western influence. So it's this sort of push-pull, trying to find that balance of what the government is comfortable with. So, Zach, this is so multidimensional because you've got this emerging affluence, you've got this uh, massive middle class and this millennial class. You've also got a government that wants to hang on to power, a government that wants to capitalize on this energy, but a government that has its communistic heritage. What's the dance from a government point of view? Freedom? Free market, uh, consumerism, materialism, idealism, communism, their heritage. What's the government thinking? What's their vision? Well, it's ironic, isn't it, that the largest communist party in the world has helped engineer the greatest capitalist revolution in modern economics, right? You know, what China is today is neither communist nor capitalist. I actually think trying to fit modern China into any one of those categories probably confuses more than it clarifies. What China is, is it's pragmatist. Pragmatist, that's the word, isn't it? It's like you wrote in your book about the unspoken bargain. If you work hard, you can live well, just stay out of the politics. Yeah, you know, a lot of young people in China treat the government and the political environment like the weather. You can prepare for it, you can complain about it, you can predict it to a certain extent, 
but you certainly can't change it. So you might as well figure out how to exist and thrive within that ecosystem. So there's no thinking that ah, if we only had social media when we had Tiananmen Square, we could have made more uh, progress. Well, there actually is that type of thinking for sure. Mm -hmm. And the way that social media, especially these last six or so years, has bubbled up throughout China and then watching the government sort of respond and Mm -hmm. parry and dodge and, and then watch the people respond to that as well. For instance, the word for or the euphemism for censorship is harmony. You know, this was harmonized, which means that, you know, it's something that was considered unharmonious was taken off. Yeah, get rid of the dissonance here. Let's have harmony. Right, exactly. But once harmonious became a word that the censors would track, the Chinese internet populace subbed it in for what is a homonym. So river crab, the word for harmony is chalicia, and the word for river crab is the exact same phoneme. It's also chalicia, so it's the same phonetic base, but with a different tone. So there's a lot of push-pull. There's a lot of, it comes out as playfulness, but it's really uh, sort of radical, this idea that we still want to have these conversations. We want a certain amount of freedom of information while also recognizing that the society we've lived in and, and the world that we live in has actually produced a, a faster explosion of growth than, than really anywhere else in the world. Well, maybe that's not something people who are interested in democracy and freedom like to hear, but maybe a controlled top-down society with a pragmatic interest in goosing the economy and doling out freedom little bits at a time as long as it doesn't disrupt the people who are in power, maybe that's an effective way to build a massive economy. Yeah, you know, it's a touchy subject because, you know, I grew up in California and went to school in New York. I'm a, I'm a patriotic person. When I see my young friends in China, particularly as they're seeing the world more and more, you know, two thirds mm-hmm. of all passport holders in China are under the age of 37. They're millennials. Hmm. One third of all students studying abroad in the United States are from China. Hmm. So this is a young generation who's increasingly exposed, increasingly aware, increasingly open minded. And those interactions with the outside world, which has really been a city on the hill for them as right. they were growing up. Instead of making them more enamored, they end up being disillusioned. They recognize that, look, it seems like all sort of societies seem to have flaws. And while our government isn't perfect, it's certainly flawed, at least it gets things done. Whoa, that is a pretty radically pragmatic way of looking at things. And uh, history will tell how it pans out. Zach Dykwalds are linked to what it means to be young and modern today in China. After nearly a decade of studies and travels in China, Zach has established a think tank in New York called the Young China Group. In his book, Young China, Zach describes how a restless millennial generation is changing their country and the world. We have web links to Zach's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Zach, when we think about censorship, there's no question China is not a free society. People are aware of that. They know they're being censored. Are you saying basically people are living with that and focusing on other things and pragmatically realizing at least we got stability and we're on a good trajectory for material wealth? Yes. When we think about freedom, I really think we have to parse it out. For instance, there's there's the freedom to vote. There's the right to participate in the democracy. And when my friends in China look at the states and they see that about 50 percent of us don't come out and vote, they think to themselves, "Okay, maybe that freedom isn't so valuable. Mm -hmm. The freedom of information, though, which is what we're talking about, is something that's deeply valued in China. And so there is frustration. There is this push pull between the people and the government in terms of what is allowed, what can be talked about, what can be expressed. I make sure to 
to say that at this point, it's more of a bummer than a breaking point. It is mm. something that people are upset about. But is this young generation deeply resentful of their government and their society because of that? No. Is it a point that they're unhappy about? Without a doubt. Now, maybe that's why the government is letting people travel, because the government realizes they're going to learn about it anyways. Let's let them travel, and they'll realize each country has a basket of pros and cons, and you'll come home and embrace our system and and recognize that this is a a reasonable option. I remember in the old days when you saw Chinese travelers, they were like from another planet. They would be globbed together in one group, and they wouldn't interact at all, (laughs) and they, they couldn't do certain things, and they all wore the same jacket and all had the same cameras. And now I don't think you would recognize a Chinese tourist as any different than a, an American Chinese tourist. How are individual young Chinese traveling these days? Well, they're increasingly traveling on their own. You know, you, you sort of touched on it. There is this era of, the, of what was called the ugly Chinese traveler, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Mm-hmm. It was a generation, especially the older generation in China, that had never left the province, let alone the country. Wow. You know, during the Cultural Revolution, at the time when my father would have been 18, the slogans were Chao Ying Gan Mei, so surpass England and catch up with America. Where was England? Where was America? Nobody knew. These were folks who had never left their town, really. Hmm. And so this young generation who's grown up with the internet, and while it is censored, this younger generation has grown up watching our movies, watching our TV shows, learning about our history. I have friends who can quote Barney from How I Met Your Mother and Martin Hmm. Luther King in the same sentence. There's a fluency in the outside world that the older generation, you know, the first international travelers just could never have been exposed to. So this young generation is increasingly adventurous. They increasingly want to see what the outside world is like. Uh, They want to experience the taste, the flavor, see the sights, and again, really enjoy the best of what life has to offer today. And I think it might be a little bit ethnocentric for the American observer to think if they're exposed to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, they'll want to go home and turn China into an Asian-American political entity. I don't think that's a very... uh, safe sort of assumption. Uh, And I think we have to recognize that there's a different outlook here. What about just sex for young people? There's a sexual revolution. I know when you had the one-child policy, that would have introduced a lot of um, accessibility to birth control. Now what's it like for young people in sex? Well, there is a sexual revolution going on right now in China. But just to sort of put an asterisk next to that before our mind starts to wander a little bit, the foremost sexologist in China refers to it as a very quiet sexual revolution. So it used to be in China that sex was more or less equated with sin. China was not a religious country, but during the Maoist era, sex was seen as something that you did to create a family unit. Mm. Now, when the one-child policy began, it provided an entire country with the way to have protective sex. You know, in order to have a sexual revolution, you need both a will and a way, right? Mm. A will being the want to open up, a way being the ability Mm. to have sex without reproducing. And so the older generation, interestingly, was, was provided with a way for the sexual revolution before the will really arrived. Since then, this young generation has started having sex for fun. So that doesn't mean they're having sex all the time for fun, but it used to be you wouldn't have sex before marriage. Only about 15% of the population had had sex before marriage, I think in 1985. And today that number has climbed up to the high 80s and low 90s. So people are having sex. They're having it earlier. But rather than having it with everyone, they're having it with a significant other. 
Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Zach Dykwald. He's the author of Young China, and his website is youngchinagroup.com. Zach, in your book, you write that academics say while the West is driven by sex, China is driven by food. So what about the foodie society and these young people? Do they like to go out? What's trendy in the way of uh, social eating and, and gourmet eating? I actually love this point. So Chinese philosophers will point to this Confucian saying, So food and sex are human nature, not part of human nature, all of human nature. Hmm. And philosophers have sort of pointed this to as, as being the major division between East and West. In the West, we're obsessed with sex, whereas in China, they're obsessed with food. And they're on the same level. <laughs> you know, it's not like, okay, this and that. They're seen as equal desires. And China is a massive foodie nation. Hmm. What's interesting is as travelers, they don't really have that persona. A lot of people see, you know, I have friends from Chengdu in the sort of central western China who will travel with the makings of hot pot with them and actually make their own meals even mm-hmm. when they're traveling in food capitals like France or Italy. I've heard that reputation, yeah. So you don't feel like they're very adventurous when it comes to food. Right. What's interesting, A, is that's changing, especially with this young generation as they're becoming more and more exposed. But for this, you know, for people in China, they're not growing up eating Indian food on Friday, Italian food on Saturday, and then Chinese food on Sunday. It's a mostly Chinese diet. So the problem with foreign food is that it's often not Chinese enough. Uh, I can give you an example. I had an incredibly close friend in Suzhou who was a big time foodie. He would take me to all of the local eateries. We'd go through, try all the traditional food, and and he would expound on the virtues and merits of each dish Hmm. with incredible artfulness. He went to France. He stayed there for about three weeks. He traveled all around and he came back and I was expecting to be regaled with tales of the incredible foodie environment of France. I asked him, what's up? How was the food? And he said, too hard. I'm like, sorry, pal, what? You're going to have to give me a little bit more than that. And he said, quite simply, it was too hard. And I thought about it for a second and I realized that most all of Chinese food is soft. It's steamed. It's cut into thin strips so it's chewable. It can be handled with chopsticks. And in fact, when Westerners have issues with Chinese food, it's very rarely about the flavor, but rather about the texture. You know, tofu is too mushy and soft. Even things like pig brains, which they eat out in Western China, and I've, I will say that I have indulged in quite a number of times. It's an issue of texture. Um, Hmm. more than flavor. And and the same when Chinese travel abroad, they often find that the food is too unlike the textures that they're used to, even if the flavors are on point. It just sounds like an amazing place to travel. It even inspired me to want to go to China and and completely forget about the rest of the world and just try to see things buried in the middle of 1.4 billion people. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Zach Dykwald, and his book is Young China, how the restless generation will change their country and the world. If you were wealthy in China, or if you were wealthy in America, how would that compare, and what would you prefer? Ooh. I would prefer to be wealthy in America. There is no doubt that the regulatory environment and the political environment in China makes for a certain amount of nervousness around really extreme wealth and whether or not there will be a freedom of mobility of wealth. There's been issues of capital flight in the past with China for the super rich. And while China has changed dramatically over the last stretch of time, I think there's a a certain freedom of movement that the wealthy enjoy 
here in the United States that the wealthy in China are certainly envious of. So wealth doesn't buy you personal and economic freedom necessarily in China. It buys you a, a heck of a lot. I got to be really honest. Mm-hmm. If you're just talking about, you know, living well today, I would mm-hmm. say that the opportunities in China, you know, I, I have some friends who are fu ar dai, so second generation wealthy. Mm-hmm. And the way that those guys and girls have fun is sort of unlike anything I've seen here, mm-hmm. here in the United States. So it's not to say that you can't have an incredibly uh, exciting mm-hmm. lifestyle in China. But when you think about the long term, mm-hmm. uh, the stability of that wealth, the safety of that wealth, I think a lot of people would prefer to be in the United States at this particular juncture. So you're talking have fun like party animal, like rip up party animal, fun. you know, fast cars, the yeah. nice clothes. The luxury market is booming. That's kind of nouveau riche. It is nouveau riche. And uh, that's you're a also nouveau getting, riche culture. You know, it's an entire nouveau riche culture. If you think in 1980, there was a sort of starting line. Everyone was relatively poor. China was emerging from the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. No one was rich. No one was poor. Someone, you know, at the beginning of a marathon, fired the starting gun. And today you have some people who have raced far ahead. Mm-hmm. You have some people who are also left behind. Those ahead, though, are often nouveau riche who are becoming more and more internationally cosmopolitan, particularly through their children. Does China have an Achilles heel? It just seems like this is going to be, they're just going to steamroll the world with their discipline and with their massiveness. Is their superpowerdom inevitable? This is the question I sort of get asked all the time. You know, if you read my book, a lot of people come away with it being like, wow, these kids, when compared to my Johnny, it looks like they're going to eat his lunch. That's not necessarily the case. We have to think about what makes for a successful country, a successful company, a successful entrepreneur, a successful family. If it was an issue of just hard work, I'd have to sort of say yeah, there's not really a conversation to be had. China will win that battle pretty consistently. But it's not just that. You think about the need to travel, the need to think creatively, the ability to think outside of the box, the ability to be happy. It's not just an issue of productivity. It's an issue mm-hmm. of happiness mm-hmm. and creativity and innovation. And there's no doubt that the defining question for China in this next period of time is can this young generation be innovative on an internationally competitive level? It's the sink or swim question for China right now. And it could be China's Achilles heel. We're going to have to wait and see. It's the question we all should be following. That's a fascinating story. And uh, best wishes as you stay connected and, and help us better understand the rise of not just China, but of young China. Thanks for joining us. And... Um, Teach me one little Chinese phrase as a goodbye. Zai tian. Zai tian. There you go. That means goodbye. Zai tian. Zai tian. There you go. Perfect tones, by the way. Uh, it's all melody. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to the Radio Foundation in New York City for studio help this week. You can listen again whenever you like and find out about our guests in the notes for each week's show. You'll find it all in the radio pages of ricksteves.com. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, 
and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.